Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hodum with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? As the Olympics continues this week, we'll look back 25 years and ahead to this fall, focused on American icon and global hero Muhammad Ali. Last Monday, July 19th, marked a quarter of a century since a frail but proud figure ravaged by Parkinson's disease lit the cauldron to open the Atlanta Games. Dick Ebersol, NBC Sports president at the time, suggested Ali to Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games president and CEO Billy Payne. Before the opening ceremony, Ebersol did not tell hosts Bob Costas and Dick Enberg who would light the cauldron. It paid off in this memorable, emotional reaction by Costas. Still exuding nobility and stature. And the response he evokes is part affection, part excitement, but especially respect. What a moment. On last Monday's anniversary, PBS and ESPN's The Undefeated presented a webinar entitled Ali on the World Stage, Wetting Our Appetites for the Latest Film by Documentarian Ken Burns. Muhammad Ali will premiere on PBS stations on September 19th. The eight-hour series will air four consecutive nights through September 22nd, and it will be available for streaming as well. Here's a teaser. He was bigger than boxing. He was larger than life. His magnetism just was amazing. Who is this guy? He was a revolutionary. He was a groundbreaker. Well, ain't nobody gonna stop me. Ken Burns captures an intimate story of victory, defeat, and determination. The price of freedom comes high. I have paid, but I am free. Muhammad Ali. Tune in or stream. Starts Sunday, September 19th at 8, 7 central, only on PBS. Last week's webinar featured clips from the documentary and a discussion with Burns, Dr. Todd Boyd, professor of cinema and media studies at USC, Janet Evans, a five-time Olympic medalist, and moderator Lanae O'Neill, senior writer for ESPN and The Undefeated. Evans, who currently serves as chief athlete officer for the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics, lit Ali's torch in Atlanta in 1996. She explained what she saw in Ali's eyes, and she discusses what she heard, referencing a comment Ali's daughter made in the introduction of Ken Burns' documentary on her father. I saw confidence. I saw just a tiny bit of nervousness and fear, but I saw, you know, kind of that athlete look of, I'm going to get this done. And what Billy Payne told me prior to, one of the reasons I didn't unlight my, call, my torch was because there was a fear that he would drop it. And if he had dropped the flame, it would have unignited. And it's not what you do on the way to the torch is, you know, the torch goes from Olympia all the way to the host country. And um, I could see in his eyes because I was so nervous he was going to drop it because I didn't want to have to help him. right? And I could see it. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to drop this. I'm going to do this. And there was this, this confidence and this pride and this like determination. And I knew it. 
right? It was just like, you got this, right? <laughs> like, and you know, he, he wasn't speaking at the time because of his illness. And if he could have, I would never have heard him anyway, because that stadium was, you know, his daughter talking about the airports and the, the roar of the crowd. Like I can still feel it in my, I think anyone who was in that stadium night that evening can still feel it. I couldn't have heard him if he had tried to talk, but I knew with this, when I looked in his eyes, I knew it was going to be fine. Among very few who knew Ali would light the cauldron, Evans explains when and why she was told. I found out the night before at midnight during our rehearsal. Um, and I, he, Ali had rehearsed prior to me. So I only found out, as mentioned, because he had continued to drop it. And Billy Payne had said to me, this is the plan if he drops it, right? Otherwise, we're not going to tell you. And I was a swimmer, right? I can't run. I'm just, I'm just like wait, I have to run all the way around this track up these three long ramps and Muhammad Ali's going to be waiting for me. Like, <laughs> so my self-talk wasn't very good, right? It was, um, I was very clearly very worried. Um, but I will tell you when I got up there and I saw him, I knew it was going to be okay. It just was just, it was, I just knew it was going to be okay. And it was. As Evans helped make history, the rest of the world shared a sense of awe. Dr. Boyd, who appears in the Burns documentary, describes his reaction and puts the moment in cultural and historical context. Different people would have different responses, and I so appreciate the opportunity of hearing Janet Evans describe that experience from being there on the platform with him, um, which is you know, such a unique experience. But I, I think different people reacted differently. What you've got um, from me in the film uh, is something quite unusual, and that is a uh, show of emotion. You don't get to be the notorious PhD by showing emotion. Um, so this is rare, but it was genuine. And, you know, when I think about that moment, um, even now, I mean, how many times have I seen that clip? How many times have people asked me to comment on it in my career? Like, I lost count, you know, 20 years ago. Um, this is something I've been asked to comment about a great deal. Um, things, you know, I talk about it with friends of mine. I mean, it's, it's, it's common in my life and no matter when I see it, I have the same reaction to it. Um, part of it is, uh, you know, exhilarating and another part of it is depressing. Um, and I think it's the, uh, sort of clash of those things that made it so emotional, you know, um, I don't have any children, but someone told me once that when babies cry, they're trying to express themselves and they can't. And that's the only way that they can get across what it is they're trying to say. And in that moment, I, I, I you know, I'm a person who makes my living with words and I had no words. Um, on one hand, you know, you're talking about um, the evidence of an American hero uh, standing on a stage in front of the world in Atlanta, which is important for numerous reasons, one of which is the place that um, he began his comeback um, after being in exile. So there's that piece of it. But the idea of a black man as an American hero, and I think what's unique about Ali is, this is a black man who back in the 1960s and 70s consciously went against the establishment. He went against the grain. He was not, you know, Jesse Owens in 1936 at the Olympics. 
he was not Joe Lewis in the late 1930s against Max Smelling doing something that Americans across the board could embrace and celebrate and hold up as emblematic of the nation in spite of what these individuals experienced as black people in America. This was a black person who went against the system in a very direct way. And here it is all these years later and he's standing on this stage and he's being embraced by the nation that he once had to defy. And at the same time, he's someone with a debilitating illness that if we're all able to live long lives, something is going to happen to us and we're gonna experience aging and illness and you don't see that every day. Maybe you see it in your personal life with your family, but in terms of public figures, um, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan spent the last years of his presidency and the last years of his life very ill. We didn't see that. If we had seen it, it would affect how we see Ronald Reagan. So here we were looking at Ali, celebrating him, but what we're looking at is not pleasant to the eye. And it's specifically because the profession he excelled in, boxing was one that the longer he did it, the more impact it took on his life physically. So there's a part of me that looks at this and sees this American hero, this black man who went against the system being embraced. And in a way, people are saying you were right all along. But then there's the other part of it of, you know, he kept boxing. He took all these punches. Uh, the second half of his career is really defined in terms of boxing uh, by his ability to continually take a punch. But he took too many. And so, you know, staying in the ring, his profession brought him to this point and you're sitting there watching it and that, that's not pleasant. But on the other hand, this is Ali as he says, keep the camera moving because I'm kind of fast. He's not that fast. He's shaking. He's trembling. But he's an American hero. And we saw it. And here we are 25 years later talking about it and, you know, looking at clips of a life well lived. Asked by O'Neill about Ali as a liberation figure, Dr. Boyd begins with the role the fighter and humanitarian played in Africa and his conscientious objection to fighting in Vietnam. Then he describes Ali's everyman appeal as a global figure. The conversation continues as O'Neill asks Evans about Ali as a winner. The fellow Olympic gold medalist makes a distinction between winning and being a champion. In addition to talking about, you know, African nations, um, uh, you know, liberation, uh, anti-colonialism, uh, you know, the third world, a phrase we don't use so much uh, anymore, uh, you end up in, you know, Vietnam and the Vietnam War, which, of course, Ali is very central in being early on and saying, I'm not going to participate. But also when you get into the 1970s and you're staging fights in Zaire, the former Belgian Congo, um, or you're staging fights in, you know, Manila, the thrill in Manila. Um, I mean, to me, that's what makes Ali one of the things. There's so many that makes him so important is he was always global. He always represented the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the, the, the colonized, the former slaves, um, the little man, 
um, the people. He was the people's champ, right? Um, uh, the people's choice. Um, this was something he embodied. It was not just something he was called. You know, all sorts of personal anecdotes about individual people who ran into Ali on the street. Um, you know, for a time he lived here in Los Angeles um, in the early 1980s. And I've talked to numerous people um, uh, who ran into him, you know, buying ice cream for his kids. And, you know, for somebody like Ali, there's a person coming up to him every five seconds, wanting an autograph, wanting a photo. You know, this is the life of a celebrity and he's the biggest of celebrities and people are telling stories about it. It made no difference how many people were waiting to talk to him, how many pictures he'd taken, it didn't matter. He loved being around people and it's that energy that is pouring out of him that makes him, you know, someone that people across the globe can embrace. And so I think there's this global dimension to him that started um, perhaps back in uh, the Olympics in 1960, but you know, it's very important that he see himself as a black man, but not simply an American black man, but a black man on the global stage. And I think in the same way that, you know, say jazz musicians before him had traveled to places throughout the globe and represented um, black people from America, he kind of embodies that as well. But when you look at his career, when you look at his you know, personality, when you look at the circumstances around it, I mean, you know, going to Zaire and fighting George Foreman in 1974, fighting uh, a Foreman and you have Mo Mobutu Sisi Seiko, Ken deals with all this in the documentary, um, the history of what is Zaire, but had previously been the Congo, the murdering of Patrice Lumumba, um, there's a whole series of historical events and you can put Muhammad Ali right in the center of them. Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines and America's relationship to the Philippines, the thriller in Manila. He was global, he was iconic, he was a representative of the third world. He was a representative of people of color. He was an American. He was all these things at once. and. There's really not a lot of people in history you can say that about, and certainly not a lot of boxers or certainly not a lot of athletes. Just to, to kind of tie this up, if you go back to 2016 at his funeral, and I covered the funeral for CBS that day. So I'm on the air live all day and I'm talking to George Foreman and I'm talking to a series of people connected to him. And I just kept saying, when I was growing up, Situations like this were reserved for presidents or heads of state. Boxers, athletes didn't get these sorts of public send-offs. He did. And there's a reason he did. A small part of it had to do with his abilities as a boxer. Right. Much of it had to do with his identity as a global citizen who connected all these forces um, at the same time. So, so, so Janet, it's interesting because Ali was certainly all those things Todd uh, just said he was, but he was also a winner, right? Um, 
He was gold medalist, three-time heavyweight champion. You yourself won three gold medals, broke seven world records in three events during your swimming career. What is it about winning that gives people um, th this, this extra ability to uh, reach people? How does it change the proportions on the world stage and engender a kind of responsibility um, that you've talked about feeling towards others and that Ali certainly had? Um, well, it's, it's tough to follow Dr. Boyd because that, I think that really summed it up for me personally. Um, you know, like I said, when he was, when he was holding that torch, it was like he wanted the world. It was, it was not his, it was for everyone. Right. And so I, it just, it summed it up so beautifully. So thank you, doctor. Um, you know, I think different than winning being important. I, I, I think of course Ali liked to win. <laughs> we all like to win. We all want to win. Um, but to me, when I speak about Ali, I think Ali was a champion. And I think there's a difference between winning and being a champion. And so I think a champion is someone who understands they're not going to win. And he didn't win everything. Um, and that didn't matter to him because yes, it was great to win. It was great to puff out your chest and receive that medal or that heavyweight belt, but it was bigger than winning for him. Right. And I think that's what athletes learn and are still learning from his story um, is that winning was a winning was a catalyst for him to be on the world stage and but it was his message it was his journey it was his platform and that evening in Atlanta I think when you look at all of the athletes that were competing from the world that Dr. Boyd is speaking about right there the Olympics there's no more international sporting event than the Olympic Games right so you have all these people from all over the world you know 10% of the athletes who participate in the Olympic Games win a medal 10% he wasn't speaking to that 10% that night. He was speaking to the 90% that don't go home with a medal. And he was saying to them, it's okay, right? Show up, be present, find your voice, tell your story, make a difference, right? And so the winning to me, I, I, he, he was a champion. Yeah, he won. He has a lot of medals at home and a lot of belts, but it was transcending winning um, that really, I think, of uh, for me personally helped me realize that it's great to win, but there's more to it. And um, that that's, that's my vision of Ali with his athleticism and, and his journey as, as an athlete. And as Dr. Boyd said, he's, I mean, clearly so, so much more. Burns puts a bow on the webinar as O'Neill poses an audience member's question on the challenge of telling Ali's story. The filmmaker weaves his answer around the comments we've heard from Dr. Boyd and Evans, and he explains the unique qualities of this Buddha-like figure who transcended sports. Lloyd from the audience asks Ken, um, Ken, did you ever feel nervous uh, doing this film? He's the most beloved person on the planet. Um, how did you handle that without giving in to the, to, the, to the reverence that Ali inspires? And I'll add to that, and get your arm around just the, the bigness of his life. Yeah, I, I think that that we've tried to spend most of um, you know our lives that by the whole team sort of biting off more than we can chew and learning how to chew it. Uh, the biggest thing is fear because when you're taking on say all of the Civil War or all of baseball or someone like Muhammad Ali, and I have to agree with Todd that. Um, 
the jazz analogy is really great because there's really only one other person on the planet that's at all like Muhammad Ali, and that's Louis Armstrong. And he just, he revolutionized uh, music the way Ali revolutionized his particular profession. Uh, and he had a capacious heart and was in turn loved across the globe in a way that was part of that subtle message of liberation that comes along with the thrill of celebrity and, 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 and things like that. You know, we put our pants on one leg at a time. We spend years doing it. We collect as many photographs and as much footage as we can. We talk to as many people who are smart. One of them is here. Um, we talk to family, two of his four wives, uh, two of his children, uh, a lot of journalists like Dave Kindred, who you saw, who covered him from the beginning to the end, also Robert Lipside, people who've written about him, like David Remnick, uh, the poet Wally Selinka, who's written one of the most beautiful poems that frames our last episode uh, about Ali, having seen him in a kind of desultory moment at a kind of autograph thing that was not the Olympics. It was not the kind of moment that Janet had that privilege of being there where all the love of the world was pouring in and all of his love was pouring out. You know, it was just some thing. And he, he wrote this extraordinary poem that exemplifies all of the reasons why we're talking to him. I mean, a lot of our sports heroes aren't really heroes in that regard. They're really good at what they do, winning and even being champions, and I'm glad that Janet made that distinction. But they're not risking everything. He risked everything. At the height of his professional career, he said, no, I'm just not gonna do it. And he knew he'd get a cushy USO job, go and do a few exhibition sparring matches, and he said, no, I'm not gonna do that. Three and a half years later, he can come back, and, and he can't beat the the, the champion Joe Frazier the first time, the first time, but he keeps at it. So uh, it, it's just going in and understanding that we're not looking for hagiography, hero worship. We're not looking for some kind of simplistic revisionism. We're looking to see a complicated human being. And saying the word complicated human being is redundant. So we're looking for that undertow, the contradictions that are inherent in each and every one of us. And the reason why we have mythic figures, iconic heroes, the hero's journey that Muhammad Ali takes is because all of their tensions, all of the contradictions within them are writ so large that they might be, at a, a, just perhaps if we're aware, a little bit helpful for the rest of us in which we play out those contradictions in a much more cramped and narrow space. And to me, he's about how you wake up. You know, Janet, you spoke so, that was so beautiful about being there and understanding what he understood in that silent thing. I met him, Todd, in L.A. once, never said a word to him in a coffee shop. You know, I'd gone in to get some tea, turned around, and he was the only person in a diner or, you know, coffee shop or whatever. And we just had this wordless conversation. It was just extraordinary to be in his presence. It was like, as, as Remnick says, like the Buddha, you know, and, and I, I didn't need anything to do but just be as present as I could possibly do. And that, no pun intended, is the greatest present he gave us. Boxing, as Rashida, his daughter says, this much, right? The rest is this extraordinary heart that just continued to grow and grow and grow. Promoting the webinar and the film on the Today Show, Burns said if he could choose to have dinner with three of the subjects of his films, they would be Abraham Lincoln, 
and the two men he just mentioned, Ali and Armstrong. The four-night, eight-hour event, Muhammad Ali, a film by Ken Burns, daughter Sarah Burns, and her husband David McMahon, premieres on PBS September 19th. Last week's webinar was the second of four Q&A events with Ali, Race and Religion, and Ali, Activism and the Modern Athlete on September 9th and 14th, respectively. For more information, go to pbs.org forward slash Ali. Thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes and find us wherever you get podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V dot com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.